You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And on this week's episode, we are going to talk about whether or not we can boost our immune system. We get this question all the time, and we're going to break down the science behind, quote unquote, boosting our immune system. Before we do that, let's recap what we talked about last week. So last week's episode was all about the flu. So Andrea, uh, you started off the episode with the basics of the flu, the different strains and mutations of the virus, and why that necessitates our getting an annual flu shot. Um, next, we um, we addressed the question, you know, do we need to get a flu shot even if we've never had the flu? Uh, we made the analogy that, uh, you know, even if you've never been in a car accident, you still wear a seatbelt, one of my favorite analogies. Um, we presented some uh, statistics of disease burden and mortality. Uh, Andrea, you took us down a very depressing trip down memory lane <laughs> to, to talk about some to talk about some past pandemics. Uh, and then we uh, we talked about some of the common misconceptions uh, about vaccine ingredients. And I know that that's something that we're going to do a deeper dive into in the future. And finally, we talked about, um, you know, we, we compared the seasonal flu to COVID-19. Am I forgetting anything you wanted to mention, Andrea? I think that about covers it. Um, you know, and one last plug, make sure to get your flu shot this year, even if you haven't gotten it in previous years. <laughs> so, uh, Andrea, that that brings me to a, uh, a fun little anecdote. Uh, you're, you're not going <laughs> to like this. Uh, hashtag mom group strikes again. <laughs> uh, in one of my local mom groups yesterday, someone had asked, you know, should should we get the flu shot this year? And you know that I was all over it. I jumped in there with <laughs> science behind it. I made you proud. Um, but so many people chimed in, you know, so proudly saying that, no, I've never gotten the flu shot, you know, and I never got the flu or, oh, the one year I got the flu shot, I got the flu. And my favorite was that apparently, Andrew, did you know that getting the flu shot increases your odds of getting COVID by 85%? Wow, I'd love to see that data. Um, oh, boy. I think we can say for our listeners that that's obviously a made-up piece of information. Of course. <laughs> I hope that goes without saying. There's absolutely no truth to that whatsoever. I did my very best to debunk that. Um, but it's really crazy to me how many people are, you know, there are so many myths out there about, about the flu shot. So yeah, I hope that we dispelled some of those concerns on last week's episode. Um, okay, so this week, as I said, we're going to talk about the immune system and whether we can boost it. But before we do that, why don't we do a little icebreaker and talk about one of our very favorite <laughs> topics, um, our pets and animals. So Andrea, do you want to tell us a little bit about your furry family? Sure. <laughs> so I'm a huge animal lover. Um, currently, we have three cats. We had four, um, but our oldest walrus passed away actually on my birthday in August. It was a long, a long road after, you know, a long illness, which ultimately, you know, 
there was, you know, he was 17. He had a great life. He was an awesome cat. But we are left with three other fur babies. We have uh, Maxwell or Maxwell Edison. Uh, if you hadn't noticed, we have a thing for the Beatles. Um, <laughs> he's, he's our youngest. Uh, we found him basically in South Philly as a stray and took him in a little over a year ago. Um, we have Oliver or, or Ollie, as he goes by, who was also a stray found in the woods, actually in my hometown. I adopted him when I was in graduate school as um as company for my other cat Zara who's the now the oldest um and she's a little bit of a miss priss and um <laughs> I felt bad I was in the lab for so many hours every single day working on my doctorate that I got her um Ollie as a companion um she was from the humane society but um ultimately we also want to get a dog at some point um but right now you know we're juggling these these three guys you can't see my face right now, but I was so excited at the, the even the mention of you adopting <laughs> a dog. That's that's amazing. Well, when I was a kid, we always we always had dogs. We had a really great dog when I was you know younger, named CJ. And um, you know, my mom still obviously she's very um into pit bull rescues, and she has mm-hmm. two right now. Um, I think at one point we had three dogs at once, which was you know a good a good um chunk of wrangling but um i think i think we would like to get a, a medium to large size dog hopefully well, sometime speak- in the near future speaking of three dogs <laughs> <laughs> my crazy ass <laughs> three dogs and two cats and then my you know two toddlers and a husband so yeah it's it's a full it's a crazy house uh, at my place but yeah so we have two pit mixes so we have scuffers um he is what is he he's half well he's australian cattle dog pit and a little bit of lab he is just the sweetest thing so loyal super for high energy. He's got a wonky eye. We're totally obsessed with him. Um, and then there's Klaus. And he's a really funny one. He's um, he's half pit and half shih tzu. Um, so I'll leave it up to the listeners' <laughs> imaginations. Let's show all the fun nicknames that we have for <laughs> And then most recently, um, we adopted our, oh my goodness, have you seen our, our latest little Yes. Riggins? <laughs> so he is, what is he? He's half d- dachshund, which I feel like I never pronounced correctly, and half corgi. Um, he came to it. These are all rescues. Uh, he was rescued. He's two years old. He was rescued from a really bad hoarding situation, breeding situation. He had all kinds of issues when he came to us. Um, and actually, just two days ago, we had a surgery for he, he is a cleft palate. He had an oral fistula. So he's oh. turning into a million dollar baby. Uh, <laughs> and then we have two cats, Marley and Rory, who we adopted uh, back when we were living up in New York in 2012. And they made the trip down to Florida with us. Aww. So, yes. Yeah, so we have a full house, total craziness. But we we wouldn't have it any other way. I totally hear that. Maxwell is our uh, troublemaker. He <laughs> gets into absolutely everything and he likes to eat vegetables, which is super weird for a cat. Um, his newest favorite snack are seaweed snacks and he will <laughs> legitimately eat an entire sheet of one of them. <laughs> I love that video that you sent the little crunching. I, can't. Oh, I, um, I told you our Rory, he likes arugula, watercress. I mean, this is, it's yeah. a bizarre dog. I would never think that a cat would <laughs> right. like, you know, these spicy greens, but hey, yeah. whatever. All right. So Andrea, do you want to get us started with some immune system basics? All right. So I want to lead off with this um, so that we understand when we talk about boosting our immune system, um, we want to understand that the immune system 
is very complicated and is composed of a lot of different pieces. Um, so this is going to be a very, very brief primer um, so that we get a feel for ultimately the landscape of a very complicated system. Um, so we have different organs, we have different vessels, and we have different cell types, as well as other sorts of components that all collaborate and work together to form this complex system in our body. So with the organs in mind, um, we have what we call primary lymphoid organs and secondary lymphoid organs. All of these organs have really critical roles, um, both in creating immune cells and also storing and allowing um, interaction between different types of immune cells. So the primary lymphoid organs are really where the immune cells are created. So the two main organs are the bone marrow and the thymus. So the bone marrow is the red marrow inside of your bones, and that's the primary source or our primary bank of new immune cells. So this red marrow is where we regenerate and we produce new immune cells to recycle old immune cells that have died, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. This is a normal expected process. Um, the problem with this is bone marrow actually changes from red marrow to fatty tissue as we age. So as we get older, our bank of new immune cells actually declines. The thymus is another critical organ that actually matures during childhood and then becomes non-functional essentially after puberty. But this thymus organ, it's located in our chest, uh, just behind our breastbone. This is the site of education and maturation of T cells. So T cells are those important cells in the adaptive immune system that we talked about. And the reason they're actually called T cells is because they're called thymus cell lymphocytes. So they actually, they're named T after the thymus, which is that organ they are educated in. And then they they get there, they get to the thymus after they migrate out of the bone marrow after forming, um, you know, as immature T cells. This is in contrast to the B cells, which are the other side of the adaptive immune system that actually stay and mature in the bone marrow themselves. Um, that's our sources of initial or our, our baby immune cells, so to speak. And then we have secondary lymphoid organs, which most of you have probably heard about. So the lymph nodes, the spleen, the tonsils. Um, we have other things that are organs like the skin. The skin is actually classified as an organ. Um, mucous membranes are also part of the skin. And these are the sites where the immune cells actually do their job. So they're patrolling these sites or they're interacting with other immune cells um, or foreign invaders to actually um, do the job of the immune system in terms of clearing our body of unwanted um, invaders. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Um, I'm hanging on your every word. This is really interesting. Um, and I'm learning quite a lot, quite a bit. Um, so you know how we'll feel our lymph nodes in our neck uh, when we're sick and sometimes they feel swollen? What mm -hmm. is that? It's a great question. So um, when you have an infection, a lot of times what's going to happen is certain immune cells, um, and it's going to be different types of immune cells depending on what type of infection you have. They all respond to different things, um, but they're going to proliferate and they're going to um, secrete chemicals, proteins, um, these things that we call cytokines. I'm sure you guys have heard about those, especially in the context of COVID. Um, but these are anti uh, pro-inflammatory as well as anti-inflammatory chemicals. Um, but what you're going to have is you're going to have a congregation of lots of these immune cells um, with pathogens possibly as well that are going to congregate in these draining lymph nodes. And so they will actually grow in size and they will become tender because you have increased flow and circulation to the sites. And the lymph nodes that typically are going to feel that are going to be usually the ones closest 
in the body to the site of infection. So when we have respiratory or upper respiratory infections, those are going to be a lot of times the the lymph nodes that are located in the jaw area. Um, or sometimes you'll get, you know, the, the lymph nodes that are located in the armpits and things like that. Um, so they're actually, it's actually a sign that you're having an immune reaction and there is something aberrant going on. That is so interesting. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail. Uh, no, I think it's a great, great and relevant question. Um, so, so there's a lot of these organs, and these organs are all connected to each other through vessels. And part of that is the circulatory system, but you also have lymphatic vessels, which which transport lymph. Um, lymph is a, a more clear fluid than, than blood, but it also it interacts with the circulatory system to assist in filtering and draining the body, um, cleaning out kind of old dead cells or debris that we no longer need in our body. Um, in the immune system as well, we have different cell types. So as we talked about in the very first episode of the pod, we have the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And each of these groups of the immune system have different cell types associated with them. So the adaptive immune system has your T cells and your B cells. Um, and the B cells, again, produce antibodies, which are a type of protein. Um, and the innate immune system has a lot of other cell types, things called monocytes or macrophages, dendritic cells. NK cells, eosinophils, neutrophils, basophils, and mast cells. You guys don't have to remember all those. The main point is there are a lot of different cell types that are involved in the immune system. They all have very, very specific jobs and roles that they play. On top of that, in addition to the organs, the vessels, and the cell types, we also have other components. So we have um, each of those cells have different types of receptors and signaling molecules that lead to their activation. Once they're activated, they also produce a lot of different types of chemicals and proteins like things called cytokines or chemokines or complement. And then you also have antibodies, which are another type of protein. So the goal or the, the point is that there's a lot of different things going on in the immune system, and it is it is truly a system. It's an interconnected network of all of these different components in the body that ensure um, we we heal wounds, we fight off infections, and we stay generally healthy. Wow, you just took a very complex topic and you and you made it a lot more palatable. <laughs> Thank you. No, really, that was great. Um, Andrew, you included uh, obviously we we prep for all these episodes. I'm sure people. Um, know that. And so you included a quote here that I think is so fantastic. And I, and I feel like it's worth mentioning. And that's, you know, you don't actually want your immune system to be stronger. You want it to be balanced. Um, sorry, were you going to say something? <laughs> no, 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 go ahead. Okay. <laughs> And so it's not like, you know, when we say, can you boost your immune system? It almost, you know, they make it, people make it seem like there's this one thing that we're like, it's a muscle that we can flex. And so I think what you're saying is so important right now. You know, it's not just one thing. It's this interconnected system of all these different factors. So it's really um, a misnomer to say to boost your immune system. You know, what does that even mean? Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when we talk about this concept of, of immune boosting, or sometimes I see, supplements being portrayed as immune support, what exactly are you actually boosting? Are you trying to increase the number of one type of immune cell? Are you trying to increase the number of chemicals that they're secreting or you can't obviously grow larger organs. So it's, it's, it's a misnomer in and of itself that you're not actually boosting anything. You're not flexing anything. You want it to function properly. 
Right. And, you know, of course, there's no magic bullet. So if you're doing things like, you know, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and going to McDonald's, but then you're taking one of these, you know, quote unquote, immuno boosters or supplements, that's not going to be doing anything for you. And obviously, we're, we're going to talk about that. And, and on this pod today, we're going to talk about some of the most commonly used supplements that we get questions about all the time, um, including vitamin C, zinc, uh, vitamin D, and elderberry, which has received quite a bit of attention as of late. So we'll we'll do a a deep dive on that. Um, But there are some things that you can do to maintain a a healthy immune system. So things like uh, getting an adequate number of hours of sleep per night. And Andrea, I know you want to mention more about that in a second. Um, Certainly minimizing stress as best as possible. I know that's so, so often easier said than done, but really attending to our mental health needs um, I, I know, you know, you and I wear, we're workhorses, right? So we're, we're working, I don't even know how many hours a day and doing stuff at home and for, with our families. And I feel like, you know, we, we often put ourselves on the back burner. So that's another way to uh, <laughs> take care of yourself. Um, of course, eating healthy, and we're going to talk about that, you know, yeah, you could take a supplement, but we get most of these things if we're, if we're eating a, you know, a healthy diet. So we'll talk more about that. Certainly regular physical activity and Andrea, um, that's much more your thing than mine. And I hate to admit that I I have been trying to carve out little 15, 20, 20 minute, um, you know, time periods every day to go for a walk, get the dogs out, just some excuse to get out of the house, get some fresh air. Um, Certainly regular checkups and well visits and preventative measures, uh, such as vaccines, and of course, good hygiene. So Andrea, did you want to talk briefly about why sleep is so important? Yeah, absolutely. So so when you're sleeping, when you're getting restful sleep, that's actually where your immune system is recovering ultimately. So again, as I mentioned, the immune system is always working. Um, you know, it's again, it's not a muscle you're flexing. It's always doing its job. It's always patrolling your body for a variety of things. This could be um, physical wounds. So you have a cut on your hand. Your immune system is the one that's healing that wound. Um, or if you have an infection and a lot of times you'll get infected with something, you won't ever actually have symptoms because your immune system fights it off before the infection is able to take hold. Um, Or even in things like cancer, where your body is constantly um, generating cancerous cells and your immune system is able to find them and kill them before actual cancer takes root. So um, all of these things are are functions of the immune system alongside a lot of other um, jobs of the immune system. And when you're sleeping, that's when the immune system recovers, uh, rejuvenates essentially, and, and actually participates in a lot of these wound healing activities. So if you're not getting restful sleep, um, your immune system is going to be continually stressed, so to speak, and, and ultimately will be less um, less beneficial. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, you know, I hate using this term boosting our immune system, but I'm I'm using it because that's what 
Yeah. That's what everyone says. Um, but if we could actually, quote unquote, boost our immune system, that actually wouldn't be such a good thing, right? Because it means our bodies would be in a, this constant state of, of inflammation and a hyperactive immune system. Can you tell us about that and sure. why that's not a good thing? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think I think really quickly, um, you know, there's, there's no... Um, there's been no data that proves a link between, you know, a lifestyle change and enhancing or boosting your immune system. Um, and as just mentioned, you know, if we could boost it, if we could pump it up, it's, it probably would be more harm than good. Um, I'm sure people have heard of allergies and autoimmunity. And these are conditions where our immune system is hyperactive. It's, it's overreactive. Um, so allergies aren't a good thing. Um, this is when your immune system reacts to typically harmless substances in the environment. We call these things allergens. Allergens are a specific type of antigen. And if you guys remember from our COVID, um, our COVID episode, antigens are components, usually proteins, but they can be other things that trigger the B cells to produce antibodies. And so when you encounter these allergens in the environment, which could be things, um, you know, like dander or pollen or things like that, um, this triggers the production of a particular type of antibody called IgE. And this production of IgE leads to the activation of one of those innate immune cells called mast cells. And these produce a lot of this chemical called histamine. And histamine, as I'm sure everybody knows, um, is a lot of inflammation. And we take antihistamines if we have allergies to kind of tamp tamp that down. Um, so this is an example of hyperreactivity of the immune system. So you could consider that a boosted immune system. Um, on the other side, you have autoimmunity. And autoimmunity is when your immune system, your immune cells are actually attacking your own body. So what ends up happening is instead of attacking pathogens that are in your body, um, it starts attacking your own self. And that is very, very detrimental. Um, and these typically don't have cures. We have management options for them, but there is no cure. Um, so examples of this is type 1 diabetes. This is different from type 2 diabetes. This is an autoimmune disease where your body attacks cells in your pancreas, which means you can no longer produce insulin because those cells are what produces that. Um, another example would be rheumatoid arthritis, which is very different than osteoarthritis, which is not an autoimmune condition. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is when your body, your immune system starts to attack the synovial joints, um, which damage obviously create inflammation in the joints. Multiple sclerosis is another autoimmune disorder that attacks the myelin, which is like the thick protective coating on the outside of your neurons. So this is a neurodegenerative disorder that um, is continually progressive and degenerative. Um, other examples, you have lupus, um, which the official name is systemic lupus erythematosus. This is full system. This is whole body autoimmune, meaning your immune system is attacking everything in your body, and it's very multifactorial with symptoms. Um, other things you might be familiar with are psoriasis. So that's an autoimmune condition where your body's attacking your skin. Um, and then Crohn's disease is an example of a GI or gastrointestinal uh, autoimmune disorder where you're attacking um, tissues and cells in the GI tract. Now, some of these do have genetic components, so they are inherited. Um, some we don't understand the trigger of them or what initiates them in a person. But ultimately, these are all examples of when your immune system is not properly functioning. It's overreactive um, and it is not regulated. Yikes. Okay. 
Um, so basically my, my takeaway from what you're saying is that there are many different kinds of cells. Uh, the immune system is complicated, um, right? Um, they're going to respond to different microbes. Um, we, you know, we, we don't know which cells should be again, quote unquote boosted. Um, and so it's really extremely complicated, right? Um, it's absolutely not something, I mean, there, there are so many trends out there. I know every single time I open up social media, I see another ad for, you know, a detox tea. I mean, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> supplements and, you know, celery juice cleanses. And I mean, by the way, just yesterday, some was posting, this is unrelated, but just so much misinformation and pseudoscience out there about how the temperature of the water is going to affect oh, how yeah. the body responds. And I have heard water. that one. <laughs> oh my God. And I, I used to hear that cold water was, you know, oh, you know, people would say that it's good and it would help us burn calories. But now apparently the consensus is that it's bad and that it trains our body to store fat. I don't even know. But basically <laughs> people are thinking that we could be, you know, tinkering with our body and the way it responds to things. Uh, and it's not quite that simple. I love that word tinkering because I think it really hits home um, this concept that, that um, you know, supplement marketers have really promoted that you can, you know, find this magic recipe and you can, you know, make your immune system, you know, better, you can boost it. And, and in reality, that's, that's just not simply not true. Right. And our bodies are freaking incredible you know, <laughs> at, at trying to achieve homeostasis and, and regulating themselves. And, you know, when I hear people talk about detoxifying, and I know that's not exactly what we're talking about here, I'm thinking, um, hello, you, you don't need a, you know, teeny tea or whatever it is, just you have a liver, you mm -hmm. know, Absolutely. Let, let your body do its thing, please. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, Andrea, should we talk about some of the, you know, the eight key micronutrients? Yeah, so so I think I'll let you start, start but I just want to, um, you know, in our bodies, obviously, there's a lot of different cell types involved, and all of these cells are undergoing cellular metabolism, and we're not going to get into the weeds on that, but in these processes, you have a lot of what we call signaling pathways going on, meaning the cells are signaling inside themselves, um, and they're also signaling to other cells. And a lot of these signaling pathways involve um, exchange or um, breakdown or regeneration of proteins and other sorts of chemicals in our body. So there are a few key micronutrients that are required for proper immune system function. Um, and those eight um, are vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin A, vitamin D, folate, also called folic acid, iron, selenium, and zinc. Now, these eight are, are critical for general cell function, um, but particularly with, within the context of, of immune cell function. Um, and Jess, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, sources of those and, and some of the kind of general guidelines? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, the, what we're going to be talking about today are supplements. And um, ag again, the, the key ones that I hear most about, and I, I assume you do too, Andrea, are vitamin C, D. Um, I hear a lot about zinc and not on that list, but also, again, related to this conversation is elderberry. Um, we really should not be relying on supplements because we can get these things from our diet. Um, it's also better to get it from our diet versus supplements because there's better absorption and bioavailability. Um, Andrea, you could tell us more about what that means in a second. Um, so again, the focus should really be on getting a balanced diet. 
uh, instead, of course, of, of taking a lot of pills. You know, Andrew, I know we always joke that these supplements, it's sort of like you're paying for really expensive people, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. excess does not necessarily benefit benefit us more. Uh, it's not like we need to, to overdose on these things. And really, once we pass a certain threshold, they get excreted in our urine. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, I think, that's this concept of bioavailability. So bioavailability is the amount of a compound that is actually available to your body to be used for these cellular processes. Um, and I know we're going to chat a little bit about elderberry. I just want to be clear, elderberry is not a key micronutrient, um, although vitamin C and D and zinc are. Um, but, but the goal is you want to have optimal intake um, so that your body is functioning normally. But once you get beyond that threshold, then you're just going to be, you know, peeing it out. And with a lot of these supplements, they're actually um, created in a formula that, you know, a chemical formula that is able to be, you know, in a powder or in a tablet or in a liquid or whatever the case happens to be. And they're not as useful. They're not as usable by our body. So what ends up happening is you might think you're taking in, you know, five times the dose that you would get in, say, a cup of spinach, but you're actually peeing mm -hmm. it all out because your body, it's not a usable format. Um, and I think that's something that's really key. And I think people don't understand fully that, you know, vegetables, fruits, healthy, you know, proteins, etc. they're going to provide the vast majority of all of these things that you need to stay healthy and have proper immune function. Absolutely. I mean, how many people do you see popping the, you know, emergency tablets or, you know, the, the powder that you pour into your water? And anyway, yes, all I all I think when I see those is, you know, good for you. Yes, golden <laughs> urine. Um, but okay, so I kind of want to skip to the punchline here, Andrea. I know, mm -hmm. I know we're going to talk about this, but basically all of these things that we're talking about, um, taking supplements, really there's, there's not a whole lot of science and really there, the evidence is conflicting, but there's definitely no strong, clear evidence that taking these supplements is going to either prevent or shorten the duration of things like the common cold or the flu. Basically, what we know is that if you are deficient in any of these things, then yes, you know, that that is going to affect your immune system and your ability to, to heal and to get over these illnesses. So if you're deficient, then yes, it is, you know, you, that is something you'll need to address, ideally through proper diet, but also potentially through supplementation. But if you're a healthy person who's, you know, has a good diet, taking these supplements, again, there really is not a whole lot of evidence that it's going to, um, to, you know, either prevent illness or reduce duration of illness. So maybe let's start with vitamin C, um, Andrea. I, I know uh, we said we, we, we can have a whole episode dedicated to the science on vitamin C. This has been uh, studied quite a bit. There have been hundreds, if not thousands of studies on, on vitamin C. So we'll definitely do a deep dive. Um, but we did come across, you know, there's some evidence that vitamin C supplementation may help to reduce the duration of an illness. Um, I think we, we stumbled upon a study that said the basic, the range is 18 to 14% reduction in the duration of common cold symptoms. Um, but there's no evidence that taking vitamin C supplements will actually prevent illness. Did you yeah. want to? And, and I want to make the point that this is routine daily vitamin C. This is not, oh, I have a cold. I'm going to overload my body with vitamin C at the time that the symptoms appear. This is, you know, you're eating lots of citrus or, you know, you are taking 
um, because you are deficient in vitamin C, you're taking a supplement because you can't get it from from your diet, um, and you're taking it every single day. And when you do happen to get a cold, um, you may have a slightly shorter period of, of symptomatic illness. Um, and again, I want to underscore the fact that most people um, are able to get sufficient levels of vitamin C just from their diet. Mm-hmm. And Andrea, I think you pulled a, a, a systematic review on research on vitamin C uh, that was divided into the effects on prevention, duration, and ser- severity of the common cold. Yeah. Um, and I believe the conclusion of that was that uh, it was actually not effective in the prevention of the common cold. Is that right? Yeah, essentially, um, you know, very similar to kind of what we just summed up that it, it, it fails to reduce the incidence of contracting colds or other respiratory infections. Um, if you were taking vitamin C in your, you know, and diet or, or even in, in pill form prior to any of those symptoms, it might reduce the duration of those symptoms, but it was not replicated across a variety of studies. So I actually, I, I also came across a meta-analysis. Um, and just to be clear, for those who don't know, a meta-analysis is just uh, a statistical analysis that combines the results of multiple studies. Uh, and and we'll, we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about different study designs and the pros and cons of, of the approach. But anyway, more on that in a future episode. So <laughs> uh, came across this meta-analysis that combined data from 29 different trials. Um, so in total, there were over 11 11,000 participants that contributed to the meta-analysis. And they found that basically, here, I'm I'm trying to skip here to to what they found, but that there was some basic, uh, excuse me, some minor um, benefit of taking vitamin C, but the the pooled risk ratio was 0.97. So what the heck does that mean? We're looking at the risk of getting the common cold in one group versus another group. And basically, they're confidence interval for those who have some knowledge of statistics range from 0.94 to 1.0. And again, I I want, I know this is probably confusing to folks who don't have a background in statistics, but the null hypothesis, the null value for any kind of ratio, risk ratio, odds ratio is one, right? Because if I'm comparing risk in one group to another group in a ratio, if they're the same, if my numerator and denominator on this are the same, my ratios is going to equal one. So if the risk in both groups is very similar, I'm going to have a risk ratio that's around one. So the fact that my confidence interval included that null value of one, that's telling me this is not a statistically significant statistic. I, was that super confusing, Andrea? <laughs> yeah, think? let me let me see if I can summarize it. So, yes. so the, the the risk ratio, which is the comparison between the control versus the treatment group, essentially, um, was found to be essentially ninety seven percent or point nine seven. Um, and what that means is that there's no difference; they're essentially identical. Is that? kind of the takeaway there, Jess? Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. I, you know, I'm, I'm itching to get more into this, <laughs> yeah, but I, I know, know we're, we're, we're working our way there. But yeah, so basically the long story short is yes, yes, they found some difference between the two groups that were being compared. Again, that's people who were taking vitamin C regularly versus those who were not. There was some difference in risk of getting, uh, developing a cold, but it was not statistically significant. Something that I thought was interesting, Andrea, was that um, there were five trials done that were combined 
combined uh, with the to-, uh, to have a total of about 600 marathon runners, skiers, and soldiers. Um, and that yielded a risk ratio of 0.48. So uh, basically, this is telling us that vitamin C may be more effective for people under high levels of physical stress, again, such as marathon runners and, and super active people. I thought you might find that interesting, Andrea. <laughs> yeah, I just want to have the caveat that it's a very small sample size and it was a single study. So, you know, we don't want to read too much into that. Um, but of course, when you are, you know, marathon training, obviously you're generally not sleeping as well. A lot of people are not eating as well, even though you should be. Um, so you're generally under a lot of physical uh, trauma to begin with. So your immune system might be a little bit strained. So, okay, let's boil it down uh, and maybe we can move on from vitamin C. Basically, mm-hmm. no consistent effect of vitamin C um, has has been seen. You know, there's really no consistent evidence or strong evidence that vitamin C prevents colds or shortens the duration or severity of colds in these therapeutic trials. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, obviously we need certain levels of vitamin C, which you can get from food. You want to get your five servings of fruits and vegetables and you'll get plenty of vitamin C vitamin C. Um, And I think we also want to make mention that vitamin C has been implicated in a lot of other diseases, and we're going to focus on that in a future episode. But taking too much vitamin C, taking overdoses of vitamin C can actually lead to some detrimental health effects. Like Um, kidney stones, by the way, which I have had, and let me tell you, not fun. (laughs) So particularly people who've had calcium oxalate stones, if you take high amounts of, of vitamin C, so more than 500 milligrams a day, that actually increases is the risk of developing kidney stones. Sorry, you were about to say something. No, absolutely. <laughs> um, you you made that point for me. And, and at that dose above 400 or 500 milligrams per day, most any, any extra vitamin C you're taking in is just going to be excreted. It's not going to be able to be used by the body. Um, and, and we found that even, you know, daily doses of 2000 milligrams or more can actually cause significant GI symptoms like nausea, diarrhea, abdominal cramping, etc. So again, we need vitamin C for proper immune function. Um, by taking excess, you're not boosting anything and you can actually have some detrimental consequences. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. All right, moving on to zinc. Um, So good sources of zinc that we could get just from our diets uh, include meat, shellfish, legumes like chickpeas, lentils, beans, seeds, nuts, um, dairy, eggs, whole grains. All of these things are great sources of zinc. Um, Zinc is found in our bodies. Uh, It does help our immune system and metabolism function. uh, And it's also very important to wound healing and sense of taste and smell. Do you want to talk? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, um, zinc is, again, one of the essential micronutrients. We can usually get more than enough through our healthy diet. Um, You know, again, excess is not going to offer an additional benefit. Um, It is used in, as I mentioned, these signaling pathways that um, help regulate and, and ensure proper function of our immune cells. And so the recommended daily amount of zinc is eight milligrams for women typically, and a little bit more 11 milligrams for adult men. So let's break down some of the science behind zinc. So again, and this is going to be the story for any of these uh, micronutrients, they're really uh, beneficial to take when we have a deficiency in them, right? So people who have low levels of zinc appear to benefit most from zinc supplements. And it's actually not all that common to have a zinc deficiency in the United States. Uh, again, since zinc is found in so many of the foods that we commonly commonly eat. Now, yeah, and okay. I just want to jump in. No, I just yeah. want to jump in that, you know, even in foods that naturally don't contain zinc, um, a lot of these foods in, in our society, at least are supplemented with zinc. So even if you're not eating a diet high in legumes or shellfish or things like that, if you're eating cereals, a lot of times those have added zinc, um, which you know, eliminates the need to even have to take a zinc supplement if you happened to be deficient. That is a great point. Um, just as with vitamin C, there's some mixed evidence uh, that taking, you know, zinc lozenges or syrup, if you take it within 24 hours after having cold symptoms, it may shorten the length of colds. Um, again, you know, it's not like there's this overwhelming body of evidence that says that. Really, the evidence is mixed, uh, but there is some evidence to suggest that that might be the case. Um, I guess I didn't realize that some people take zinc uh, intranet easily. I don't know if you knew that, Andrea, that that was news to me. Uh, But apparently that is potentially dangerous. And it has been linked with the loss of sense of smell, in some cases, long term or permanently. So does not sound like that's advisable. Um, Andrea, you've been talking about wound healing. So it sounds like people who have things like skin ulcers and low levels of zinc, again, if you're deficient, they might benefit from oral zinc supplements. Were you going to comment? Yeah, I think the same principle goes here. Again, you know, proper immune function, you have to have a certain level of zinc in your body. Um, Wounds are obviously a component that the immune system participates in. So if you have these chronic ulcers, um, things like that, uh, if you're deficient from zinc, um, again, supplementation is is really, you know, that's when it's advised. Uh, okay. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, also, so oral zinc supplements, they can reduce the symptoms of diarrhea in, in children. But again, we're talking about children who have low levels of zinc. So kids who are um, suffering from malnutrition. And there really isn't evidence that we should be giving oral zinc to children who have diarrhea if they have a healthy, varied diet. Um, there's also some research that suggests that oral zinc might slow the progression of age-related macular degeneration. Um, And then finally, I mean, I I feel like I keep hearing now about zinc oxide as a, you know, (laughs) you're chuckling, but you know, there's been a whole lot of concern about um, suntan lotion, sunscreen. And so zinc oxide is very popular now uh, applied to the skin to prevent sunburn. And also I know I rubbed it on my baby's bottoms. um, (laughs) I have some virtual experience with that myself. Um, But yeah, no, so zinc oxide is an, is an ointment. It's a cream. Um, It's not, you know, metal zinc, um, but it, but it works as a skin protectant ultimately. 
Okay. Anything to add to the zinc conversation or you think we should no, move on? To- I think, I think again, same is true as with vitamin C. Um, you know, you need certain levels of it. Uh, you can get it from your diet as long as you're eating a healthy diet. Um, there's no need to take a supplement unless you're truly medically deficient. And again, taking zinc is not boosting anything. It's just ensuring that your immune system is going to work as it should. Okay, let's dive into vitamin D. And Andrea, I know you did a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the recent studies on vitamin D because there's been a lot of talk about vitamin D and COVID. Yes. Um, So let's just start by saying, you know, vitamin D uh, is a fat-soluble vitamin. It's naturally present in foods, typically salmon, fatty fish, cheese, some dairy products, egg yolks, and other foods that we commonly eat. Um, And as you said, it's also added, um, added to lots of the foods. I know I always see like vitamin D for milk, you yeah. know, things yep. like that. Um, and, but it's also produced endogenously. So when we go outside, we're in the sunlight and UV rays uh, strike our skin, it triggers vitamin D synthesis. And that's yeah. actually the main method of syn- synthesis in humans. Did you want to add anything there, Andrea? Yeah. I mean, you know, a, a little dose of sun, you know, like, like just mentioned, you're starting to go for daily walks, you know, 30 minutes of daily exercise is really all you need. And if it's outdoors, then you also get a, a, a dose of vitamin D. Ultimately, you get some, you know, UV rays that synthesize, trigger your body to synthesize vitamin D. Again, vitamin D is one of those essential micronutrients. You need certain levels of it. Your body actually can make it, which is something really unique about vitamin D. Um, you know, usually all the other micronutrients we have to take in in some capacity. Um, And vitamin D, again, those levels that are required are involved in helping to regulate and modulate the immune system. So we do want levels of vitamin D um, for proper immune function. So there has been some previous research that has shown that healthy level, oh, excuse me, not some, we know that healthy levels of vitamin D um, reduce the risk of respiratory tract infections other than COVID-19. So again, we're talking about just normal healthy levels of vitamin D. um, And really the problems arise when we are deficient in vitamin D and any of these other micronutrients that we've talked about. Um, So do you want to talk a little bit about... um, any some of the recent studies on vitamin yeah, D in the think, context of COVID? I think- I think the probably the the one that's gotten the most attention was a recent study in in PLOS One, um, and the study was basically um, concluding that fo- uh, people that were hospitalized for COVID nineteen who were who were infected with COVID nineteen that were deficient in vitamin D were more likely to have severe symptoms from COVID nineteen. However, um, this study had a lot of flaws and is actually now in review about possibly being retracted. Um, there was a very small sample size. So we have to always keep that in mind. If you're not surveying enough individuals, you can't necessarily trust the the truthfulness of the data. Um, The other thing on top of that was they were reporting COVID-19 patients, but in the study, only 31% of the individuals in question actually had PCR confirmation of COVID diagnosis. Um, So this was not actually taken into account when they did a subgroup analysis. Um, I think the biggest thing that would maybe raise a flag for me is that there was a competing interest um, that include, um, you know, interest in personal vitamin D research and and hope, you know, possible, um, you know, granting or funding um, related interests. Um, the authors responded to some of these critiques and they wanted to reiterate the fact that they did not claim that there was a causal role, meaning vitamin D was not a player in the cause um, of 
contracting COVID-19 or not, um, and that they cannot explain a legitimate cause and effect relationship of vitamin D versus uh, COVID-19 infection. Okay, so let's just, the main takeaway is that um, the there is research that suggests that vitamin D deficiency may increase the risk of COVID infection and, and severity of infection. But again, you know, taking vitamin C, right, uh, vitamin D, excuse me, right now, there, there's not a whole lot of evidence that that's going to, you know, cure COVID or shorten the duration uh, or the Blah, 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 the duration of the illness. Um, so uh, anything to add to that? Or do you think we can move on to um, not one of the, the eight <laughs> micronutrients that you were mentioning earlier, but something that we talk about a lot, elderberry? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's a good point to move on. I, again, I just want to you know, reiterate again, these three, vitamin D, zinc, and vitamin C are three of those eight essential micronutrients. Supplementation is not going to boost your immune system in any capacity. You generally are able to get sufficient amounts of those micronutrients from your diet or your regular behavior, such as going outside. Um, and there's no definitive data to suggest that they are going to actually prevent any sort of illness. All right. Let's uh, give a, a herd. Let's move on to our herd from the herd segment, uh, which is all about elderberry. So here we go. I have been taking elderberry syrup for years at the first sign of sickness, and it always helps me get better. Is there evidence behind this, or is it placebo effect? Now, tell me you don't hear this all the time. Uh, you know, oh, I'm taking elderberry, or I take, you know, when I get the sniffles, I take zinc, and I'm immediately cured. I, I mean, I, I hear it a lot. I have a lot of <laughs> friends who ask me their my opinions on elderberry syrup and and mm -hmm. all of that. And I'm I'm happy that we're addressing this with some data. Yes, and also just to note that when I hear people say that, my immediately you know my biostatistician alarm bells are going off, saying, "Oh gosh, that's an anecdote. You're an N of one. You know, even if you're saying right. oh, you, your aunt, your friend, um, obviously you know the, these uh, these anecdotes are, are not uh, conducted in any sort of an experimental setting where we're controlling for lots of other factors that could also be impacting um, outcomes. And we are going to talk quite a bit about study design in our next on our next pod. Um, but okay, elderberry. So elderberry extract has been used medicinally for centuries to fight infections, clear up complexions, and quote unquote, boost immunity. Elderberries come from a tree known as Sambucus. Um, the European elder known as Sambuca nigra or black elder, I'm probably totally butchering that pronunciation, is the most common tree from this family. Um, berries and flowers of this tree are edible. However, elderberries have to be cooked. I know there was just some, just recently, there was a case of a woman who was poisoned. I don't know if you remember that, Andrea. She was making syrup, but I guess the elderberries weren't proper cooked and, and they were toxic and she became very, very sick from it. Um, so I, one thing I was reading when I was prepping for this was that uh, elderberries can increase inflammatory cytokine production. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, Andrea? Yeah. So, you know, when your immune system is responding to different invaders, this could be an infection, it could be a physical wound, it could be cancer. Um, those immune cells that we talked about produce chemicals, and these chemi some of these chemicals are called cytokines. Some are associated with increase in inflammation, so that would be promoting things like blood flow and swelling and fluid buildup and things like, and activating 
targeting other immune cells. Some are considered anti-inflammatory. Um, so there's a lot of interplay and there's a lot of balance required in order to have an appropriate immune response to, say, an infection. Um, there's been a little bit of data that in the lab, um, elderberry extracts can lead to the production of, of a few key inflammatory cytokines. Um, one is called TNF-alpha, one is called IL-1-beta, IL one is called IL-6. Um, I'm not going to get into what they actually do. But again, these, these cytokines are typically associated with increased inflammatory responses and increased inflammation. Now, some people think that that is a good thing. And, and the true the truth of it is, is that's not always a good thing. Again, we want to have this balance. We have this very tightly regulated complex system that's signaling to each other and, and interacting and communicating with each other. And you have to have a balance of enough immune response, but not too much immune response. Um, and particularly in the case of something like COVID-19, we've seen a lot of, um, negative clinical outcomes are associated with an overreactive immune response. And that term that we've heard circulating called cytokine storm. And that, that, condition is when these inflammatory cytokines are being produced out of control, they're unregulated, and they create so much inflammation that it exacerbates the disease itself. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, I know everyone is always buzzing about the cytokine storm, and it sounds like maybe we avoid elderberry, particularly if you've been diagnosed with COVID, um, because again, we're not quite sure, uh, you know, it might activate, is that the right word, Andrea? Um, activate a cytokine or what trigger a cytokine storm? I don't know what the proper terminology is. Yeah. But I mean, again, you know, there's really no evidence about any sort of benefit from elderberry. Um, mm -hmm. But if, if the one, you know, data point is that in some limited studies, it has been shown to increase inflammatory cytokines and that, that, condition is actually a detrimental condition in the case of COVID-19. Right. Um, since we don't know that we, since we know that there's not a benefit to elderberry, it's probably smart to just steer clear of it outright. Um, so I know you're going to, you're going to summarize the largest study about elderberry yes. here. Yes. Yeah. So there was a recent study led by uh, doc Dr. Michael Macknin. Uh, he's at the Cleveland Clinic, Lerner College of Medicine. He just conducted the largest study on elderberry to date. Um, worth noting that it, even though it's the largest to date, it's still a relatively small study. Um, and he was evaluating uh, how elderberry is used in the treatment of flu patients. And so he found no evidence that elderberry benefits the duration or severity of the flu. Um, Post-hack analysis suggested that primary outcomes with elderberry taken alone without Tamiflu, which is the antiviral used to treat the flu, were actually were, were two days worse than with placebo taken alone. And so these results contradict some previous studies uh, that demonstrate uh, that 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 found some benefit to taking elderberry. So basically, long story short, we need further studies. But again, this is the largest one done to, done to date, and it showed no benefit um, in treating flu patients. Yeah. And so let me quickly just summarize that. So basically what you're saying, Jess, is that when you're comparing placebo or nothing versus elderberry, patients had two days longer symptom duration when taking elderberry than taking nothing. Is correct. that about right? That is correct. All Not right. great. Not so, good at all. And I think, I think this really <laughs> underscores, you know, we've done 
countless studies on a variety of other compounds, um, you know, and the fact that to this date, you know, in 2020, we still have no strong body of evidence that suggests there's any sort of benefit for elderberry, I think, you know, really underscores the fact that, yes, it is likely placebo effect that you feel better when you take elderberry. Uh, Just a disclaimer here, you know, obviously we've been talking about supplements. Always check with your doctor. We're not here to give you guys medical advice. Supplements may interact with other medications that you're taking. So always a good idea to run it by your own physician, of course. Um, And I think that's actually a really good segue um, Mm -hmm. to the very last section that we're going to talk about here. So supplements are a broad catch-all for a lot of things. You know, there are, um, you know, protein supplements, amino supplements, vitamin supplements, supplements, et cetera. Supplements consist or or um, are comprised of a $130 billion industry to date. Um, it is projected that that supplement industry is going to be worth $230 billion by 2027. What this is, is a very successful marketing campaign. Um, something that I really want to hit home about is that there are no regulations on supplements. There are no standards of production. There are no standards on bioavailability. They are not um, under the same sort of scrutiny as drugs are because they're not considered drugs. So they don't have any sort of safety or effectiveness guidelines or requirements that they need to fulfill before being sold. Um, All the drugs that you can buy, even over-the-counter ones like Tylenol and Advil, must be proven safe and effective by the FDA. That's not true with dietary supplements. They don't have to fulfill any sort of criteria. So a lot of these marketing campaigns tout very outrageous and very unfounded claims, um, and they contain ingredients that not only have no data to support the consumption of them, but there's usually no data to support any sort of benefit. And and on top of that, many of these, um, as Jess alluded to, may actually have detrimental effects. They may interact with other medications you may taking. You may even have some sort of allergic reaction to some of these. Um Within that 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 $130 billion industry, um, there's very little, little evidence to suggest that any of these supplements offer benefits unless you have a specific and legitimate nutrient deficiency. Now, of that, that family of $130 billion, only 2.9% of individuals taking supplements are actually taking them for a legitimate diagnosed or perceived vitamin or micronutrient deficiency. So what that means is more than 97% of people who take supplements are taking it for some marketed or perceived enhanced performance, immunity boosting, overall well-being improvement. And look, I get it. You know, we're we're living through a pandemic. I feel like, you know, we're we're all uh hyper aware of of the need to be healthy and we're all terrified of of, of getting uh COVID and other illnesses, of course. Uh, but the bottom line is that unless you have a clinically identified deficiency, the the available science and evidence tells us that really there's little reason to consume these supplements. And by the way, they're not cheap. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you're you're paying a lot of money, you're you're buying into really good marketing, unfortunately, but the science just isn't there. Um, your physician may recommend a supplement uh, if you're deficient in any of these things. Um, also folic acid. I know I was told to take that when I was pregnant. Um, but again, the science just isn't on the side of our current embrace of the more is better ethos. Yeah. And I think I just want to end today with, you know, be wary of, of the hype and be wary of headlines. Um, 
other than these essential micronutrients, many of these immune-boosting so-called uh, immune boosting products can actually be harmful. And, and a lot of times fraudulent products are being launched on the market. And since there is no regulation involved, um, people can be consuming these, you know, to their detriment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we just want to be very careful. We want to be very clear about the fact that, you know, not all of these are created equal. There's very little evidence to suggest they are actually beneficial to us. Very well said. All right, Andrea, you want to take us home? Sure. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. In our next episode, we will discuss research study design, including types of studies and research trials and why quality of evidence matters. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. 